My name is Fred. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so thrilled that you're with us today. I have a question for you, though, and it's this. Does this thought ever go through your head? I don't have enough. Does that thought ever go through your head? I don't have enough. Maybe your job is requiring too much of you and you don't have enough energy or you don't have enough capacity to do what needs to be accomplished. Maybe you're a parent and being a father or mother makes you feel like a failure most of the time and you don't have the, the energy or the patience to be a quote unquote good parent. Maybe you think you're not a good friend lately and you don't have the time to invest into, into being a good friend or, or maybe this is the one that came to your mind first because I think it's the one that most of us feel. Maybe you don't have enough money and you've got more bills and you've got more debt than you have cash, right? See, here's the deal. I believe every single person in this room and even every single person that listens to this on the podcast, I believe all of us have some area of life where we don't feel like we have enough. We don't feel like we are enough. We don't feel like we have what it takes. And in those areas, we see limits instead of opportunities. When that happens, here's what also happens. This thought goes through our head. It's not only I don't have enough, it's also I don't have enough and I'll never have enough, right? Because we take what we think about today and we look to tomorrow and it looks just the same. Now there's a a, a term for that kind of, of thinking Right, This kind of thinking that says, if I don't have enough to do this, I won't have enough to do that. If I don't have enough to parent one child, I certainly won't have enough to parent two children. If I'm not a good friend to one person, there's no way I'm gonna meet this other person. I'm not gonna go to that men's event. I'm not gonna go to that women's event. I can't be good friends with the people I got right now. Right, If I don't have enough money now, I'll never have enough money then. And there's a word for this kind of thinking, and it's called scarcity. Right, it's called scarcity thinking. And simply put, what scarcity thinking does is it looks at limits and it focuses on those limits, right? It sees those limits. It sees a broken friendship, that's a limit. It sees failure in parenting, and that's a limit. It sees a dwindling bank account, and that's a limit. See, scarcity looks at limits and says this. Scarcity looks at limits and says, I don't have enough and will never have enough. That's what scarcity says. But there's this other type of thinking that looks at limits as well. And honestly, I think this type of thinking is just as dangerous. Actually, I think it's more dangerous because it sounds spiritual to some. And it's called prosperity or the prosperity gospel. And if you've been around church, if you haven't been around church for a while, that's a new term for you. But let me explain to you in a very overarching uh, way what the prosperity gospel is. The prosperity gospel is for those people um, uh, who are believers in Jesus. There's a group of people who think that, that Jesus wants them to prosper, that God wants them to prosper. And I think that's true. I think that God is for us. But what they do is they take that prosper and they turn it into prosperity. They take that prosper and they turn it into a litmus test of their relationship with God. And that God doesn't only want them to prosper if God loves them. And if they love God enough, 
That prospering looks like the biggest house. That prospering looks like the newest car. That prospering looks like fancier clothes. You see, this this type of thinking does something that's incredibly dangerous. Because what it does, prosperity still looks at limits. And it says, this is how much money I have. This is how much capacity I have. This is how much energy I have. And instead of saying, I don't have enough, prosperity never will have enough, prosperity looks at those limits and says this. It says, I don't have enough and God better give me more. Because the heart of the prosperity gospel is that if God doesn't give you more, there's something wrong with him or there's something wrong with you. The problem is both scarcity and prosperity focus on limits. And what I've seen happen in people time and time again when they focus on limits, whether it's scarcity or prosperity, it produces something in them that in the church is ugly and it's jealousy. It produces jealousy, it produces arrogance, it produces pride, it produces self-righteousness. All of those go against the gospel that we believe. But what if there is a better way than focusing on limits? What if there's another type of thinking that is actually a biblical idea? Because the problem with prosperity, when you read the New Testament, Most people suffered a lot in their faith. What if there's a better way than than focusing on limits and scarcity and prosperity? What if God has a better way for us to view the world? Because what we're gonna see today is how to live and even find joy when we don't have enough. And y'all, here's what I invite you to do. I invite you to just trust me and trust God's word for the next 30 minutes. Because I'm gonna say some things that are gonna sound like I have lost my mind when it comes to not having enough. But I believe that when we embrace the gospel, and we let the gospel do what the gospel does and sink into those areas of our soul and our thinking where we are believing wrong thoughts and letting those lies soak into our, our lives, the gospel will, 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 will go into those areas and change us. And when that happens, we get to experience a joy that is unlike anything else. And so today, we're gonna be in Philippians chapter four, verses 10 through 13. If you need a Bible, there's one right in front of you. And and in that Bible, it's on page 817 is where we're going to be. And you'll see the chapter headings. And then you'll see little numbers by the verses. And that's verse 10 through 23 is what we're going to be looking at today, page 817. Or you can download the Bible app, click on events, click on Fellowship Asheville. All the scriptures are there that we're talking about today, as well as questions to consider afterwards and, and ways to go ahead and fill out a Connect card digitally and sign up for events and stuff like that is all there too. As you're turning there, let me just highlight the fact that this is our last day as we in our series of Eclipse. Like, 23 is the last verse. And it's been a really fun series, hasn't it? Going through Philippians, talking about the things in our life that eclipse joy. Because this letter from Paul to the Philippian church is about joy. But what we've seen time and time again 
is that we've allowed these little things to, to overshadow this huge joy available to us all the time, every day, everywhere in Jesus. And that's why we're calling it eclipse, because that's what an eclipse does, right? An eclipse is a little moon that dims the light of this really big sun. And that joy that's available to us from the Lord is like this, this sun that's always shining and is huge, and yet we let these little things of worry and anxiety and fear and doubt shadow, overshadow that big sun. And just like an eclipse, if you, if you got to see the full eclipse, you got to see the full eclipse a few months ago because you were in the path of the shadow. And if you didn't want to see the full eclipse, all you had to do was move over. And then you'd see the sun in its full glory. Joy is the same way. That where you are determines what you see and a simple change in perspective from going from believing a lie to believing the truth opens up that joy fully available to you. And today, what we're gonna see is how when we focus on our limits, it can actually eclipse the joy of God that's fully available to us. And we're gonna see a better way to live within the limits that God has placed around us, right? So let's look at verse 10 and let's start working our way through this this last little bit of Philippians. Verse 10 says this, chapter four, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Now what Paul's saying here is that this Philippian church, remember they sent this guy Epaphroditus. We're gonna see him again here. And, and he's from Philippi. He's from the Philippian church. Paul is in Rome and he's in prison. And in prison, the only way to live is by what people bring you and what people give you because Paul couldn't work and he couldn't make any money for himself. And so he's literally living off the gifts of people. And this church in Philippi sent money and sent supplies to Paul through this guy named Epaphroditus. And what he's saying here is that he fully understands that they wanted to give for, to him for a while but just couldn't. Right, because you, you didn't have Venmo, you, you couldn't do anything like that, you had to send it via a person, and that takes time. And so they waited for Epaphroditus to be able to take the gift, and so he, find, they, he was finally able to do that, and this is what Paul's gonna talk about. But what we're gonna see next is interesting, because Paul's gonna show us what was going on in his soul while he waited. While he's in prison, literally not able to make money for himself, beyond poor, living off the need, living off the, the gifts of others, we're going to see what was happening in Paul's soul because he's going to talk about what to do when you don't have enough. He's going to talk about what to do when whatever came to your mind when I said you feel like you don't have enough. When you're feeling that way, Paul's going to show us what to do. And I want us to pay close attention here. Because what he's learned is for us, when we have more bills than we have cash, when we have, uh, what, when we have more failures to be a good parent than we have successes, when we're not a good friend, uh, when, when work is overwhelming, when we don't have enough, look at what Paul has learned in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation, which he's going to explain in the next verse, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's the word? Content. 
Whatever situation, and Paul's gonna talk about the situations he's been in. He's been high and he's been low. He's been rich and he's been poor. In every situation, he's learned to be content. Content when he has too much and content when he doesn't have enough. And you know what content means? Let me tell you what content means because scarcity looks at limits, right? And it says, I don't have enough and I will never have enough. Prosperity looks at limits and says, and says I don't have enough and God better give me more. Contentment does something completely different. Contentment, contentment lives within those limits, looks at them and it says something scandalous. Something scandalous today, as I would imagine, it was as scandalous in a Roman prison because contentment says this in the face of limits. Contentment says, I am enough. You see, contentment looks at those limits and says, I am enough. And if you don't believe me, like I said, just hold on. Stay with me. Because what Paul's gonna show us is how contentment works. How can a person Look at their limits, their lack of energy, their lack of, their lack of capacity, their lack of time, their lack of, of money, that dwindling bank account. How can, how can a person look at those limits and let contentment rule? How can a person look at their limits and say, I am enough? Look at verse 12. It says, I know, he, Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. I'm gonna stop right there. Been in church, you know the rest of the verse. We're gonna get to it, right? But I'm gonna stop right here because I can do all things is Paul saying, I am enough. I can do all things. It doesn't matter where his limits are. He's been high and he's been low. He's been rich and he's been poor. Yet no matter where his limits are, he has found contentment. Why? Because Paul's learned something. Paul's learned that his strengths, and I think even more importantly, his weaknesses, don't come from his limits. He's learned that his strengths and his weaknesses do not come from his limits. Because you see, scarcity looks at limits and lets them define you. Prosperity looks at limits and lets them define God, right? But contentment doesn't look at limits to define you. It doesn't look at limits to define God. Look at what contentment looks to. In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, y'all, Sunday school answer. We don't have Sunday school, but you know what I'm saying, right? Who is the him that Paul is referring to? Jesus. I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. You see, contentment doesn't look to limits. Contentment looks to Jesus. Contentment looks to Jesus to define who you are. You see, Paul says, I can do all things. That means limits are okay with him. Whatever limits God places Paul in, whether high or low, whether rich or poor, he knows that it is Jesus who gives him the strength to live within those limits. This is what contentment looks like. 
Look at what it produces in Paul. Because here we're going to see where joy lives. That joy lives in contentment. And look at what Paul does based on this contentment. Verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me, giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. And so what Paul's doing is he's getting historical on them. And he's saying, listen, guys, thank you for the gift. Man, y'all have been giving to what I've been doing. You have been giving to the gospel working in and through me since the very beginning of my ministry. And, and, and as Paul thinks about this gift and he's doing it from this place of contentment, all of a sudden what grows in him is this gratitude. Now, church, listen. Can you tell if you have a scarcity or prosperity mindset that focuses on your limits and your limits tell you what to think, do you think it's easier to give from a, that place or from a place of a contentment mindset because God tells you what to think? Which do you think is easier? It's contentment. You see, and, and, and this will be seen in your gratitude because here's what contentment produces. Contentment produces gratitude. You see, if, if Paul wasn't content, he would have said, y'all, it is about stinking time you sent me this money. I have been waiting. And he doesn't. He's blown away by the fact that they would continue to give. He's blown away by the fact that they would continue to send money to him, especially because we're gonna find out here in a little bit, they weren't wealthy. They had needs as well. And yet they still gave. You see, contentment produces gratitude. When Stacy and I were married, I was a missionary. She was a school teacher at a small private Christian school. Like income wasn't our strongest feature when we were first married, right? But when we got married, we had what married people do a lot of times and had showers. And so people showered us with all this stuff. The dishes we ate on, somebody paid for. The, the forks and knives and spoons that we ate with, somebody paid for. Right, We even had these pictures in our living room that somebody bought for us. And I remember sitting in my living room one time and being overwhelmed with gratitude for all this stuff. And y'all, listen, the house that I lived in, the house that I moved my sweet wife into was the house that I lived in with five other guys before she moved in. You can imagine what that house smelled like you can imagine, like, okay, there was this, this uh, we had some blankets that were in this dresser, and this was after we had married. We hadn't, uh, I hadn't pulled the blankets out in however long it had been. And I pulled it, and y'all, it smelled like somebody had left a dead armpit. And, and I pulled that blanket out, and I was like, oh my gosh, this smells so bad. And she was like, honey, that's what your whole house smelled like before I moved in. Right, our carpet was filthy. We had a leak in the closet whenever it rained. It would leak from the bottom. That was weird. We had a hole in the roof that every once in a while, if it rained really hard, it would leak. We had a foundation in Texas that shifted, right? Because that's kind of what they do too in Texas. I could have focused on all that stuff, but that day I was sitting in the living room and I looked up and I saw those pictures. I was overwhelmed with gratitude for all the stuff that people gave us. 
You see, contentment produces gratitude. And this is how Paul is able to get through some of those tough times. But look at what he's gonna do next because now he's gonna shift from talking about his contentment to talking about their giving and what their gift means, not only to him, that's what he's talked about, but now he's gonna talk about this is what your gift means to God. Watch what he says in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases, uh, increases to your credit. So he uses this banking term. And let's read on to see what, what is actually increasing. What, what, what kind of credit is he talking about? In verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so what Paul does here is he's talking about the stuff that they sent through Epaphroditus and, and he's thanking them for it. But he also uses this language from the temple, from worship, that a fragrant offering and a sacrifice pleasing and acceptable to God. And he uses these pictures from the, the from, from, from Old Testament worship, from the worship in the temple to show them something. Because you see, Paul's saying something profound about giving here, whether you have enough or whether, you, like in the next verse that we're gonna see, even if you don't have enough, that giving is worship. That giving is worship. You see, when you give your money to the work of God, it is an act of worship to God. When you give your money to the work of God, it is an act of worship to God. And so let me ask you, do you think it's easier to give from a place of contentment or from a place of scarcity? It is easier to give from a place of contentment. Always contentment. I've worked in ministry for almost 30 years now. And in every place of ministry I've worked in, it has been funded by people giving gifts. And no place that I have worked in ministry have we generated our own income. We have generated income from the gifts of others, right? So, so I know the tension of limits and not having and not feeling like you can meet your limits. But here's one thing I've seen time and time again doing 30 plus years now in ministry where people give to support the ministry. Y'all, it is the people who have the least that seem to give the most because they have learned contentment. You see, we, when I say we, I'm including me in this. We're one of the wealthiest nations in the world, right? And if you're poor here, you're better off than almost everybody else on the planet. And we don't understand limits. Now, we may think we do, but we don't. When you go to places where they're literally living in cinder blocks, if they're lucky, if they're lucky, are cardboard houses. And they talk about how they can be praying for you as you're taking the gospel out. And they wanna fix you something to eat. Like that is a contentment that is real and that is deep. And what I've seen time and time again is that those people who think they don't have enough usually have more than they think they know and they have a really hard time giving it away. But those who are content with what they have, they often have less than they know and they give it away freely. Now y'all, we've been 
In our house, we've been watching this show called The Kindness Diaries on Netflix. It's binge-worthy, but it'll make you cry like a baby, so just prepare yourself, right? Because it's this guy who uh, is, is wealthy, but he's decided to live off the kindness of others. And he has, a, in the first series, he has a motorcycle with a sidecar. In the second series, he's driving a convertible VW Bug. And in the first series, he wants to go all the way around the world just on the kindness of others. He can't accept cash. All he can do is accept gas for his motorcycle, food to eat, and a place to stay at night. And so he literally drives into a town and goes, hey, can you fill up my car with gas? I'm traveling around the world on the kindness of others. Or can I spend the night at your house with you? which is an odd thing to ask people, but he does. You watch this show and you will see time and time again the people that don't have much of anything are the ones that welcome him into their house. And in one episode, a homeless guy says, no, but you can sleep with me. You know, you can sleep where I sleep. Now, here's what they don't know. This isn't a spoiler because it kind of plays out in every episode. Because he's wealthy, and he doesn't do this for everybody, but just when he feels like it's right, I don't think he's a believer, he will lavish on the people that opened up their lives and hearts and homes to him. And it's in, that's where you cry, right? Because you see, you see generosity, and you see contentment, and it is beautiful. And y'all, it is supposed to be beautiful because we're designed by God to be content and we fight it. We're designed by God to be generous and we fight it. And so let me ask, is your giving an act of worship? When you give to fellowship, like let's just get nuts and bolts. When you give to fellowship, Is it a response to what God has done for you? Is it from a place of contentment? Does it produce gratitude and thankfulness? Now listen, if your giving is anything less than an act of worship, it is a contribution, right? And we don't know the difference when we see your check. You know the difference. Is it an act of worship? Or is it a contribution? Because a contribution comes from a place of convenience, right? You give what feels easy to give. Passing that bucket around, it's funny. In the first service, I said that was a contribution because it was a place of convenience. You're digging around in your chain, you know, whatever change you have and throwing it in, which is awesome. Contributions can help, right? Oakley's gonna be thrilled when we take that bucket over there on Monday. And I said that in the first service, that was a contribution, and somebody came up to me and said, hey, read this text thread between me and my husband, because for whatever reason, they, were, they weren't sitting right next to each other. And it was this text thread of him saying, hey, I've only got $10, and I forget what it was for. It was set aside for something else. He said, is it okay if I throw that in the bucket? She goes, well, is that what God is leading you to do? And he said, yes. And she goes, then we'll be okay. For them, a contribution was what Paul was talking about. It was sacrificial giving, and it was an act of worship. It wasn't out of convenience. Because, see, the kind of giving that Paul's talking about here, it isn't about convenience. It's sacrificial in its worship, so much so that he says this in verse 19. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be the glory forevermore. Amen.
forever and ever, amen. And so you see, they gave to Paul and Paul is encouraging them in the fact that God will meet their needs because when they gave to Paul, they could have kept it and met their own needs, right? And he's reminding them, listen, God will meet your needs. You can give even when your limits look like you shouldn't give. You can give because it is an act of worship. And they could have kept their money and met their own needs, but instead they gave. And this is what the New Testament describes giving as. This is what the New Testament says. This is what a life of contentment and sacrifice looks like. Because the New Testament gives this look that, that, that giving is beyond what you think you can give. Paul says this in another part of the Bible. He's, he writes a letter to the Corinthian church, which is another, another town, another church. And he, he says this in, in, in the book of Corinthians. He says, each one much, must give as he has decided to give in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, right? Because that's, by the way, that's one of the reasons we don't pass the plate here and we have the offering in the back is because we actually want you to not give out of a place of compulsion, out of a place of guilt, because let's be honest, there were some of you that you threw some change in that bucket because the person sitting next to you was watching, right? And you don't want to pass the bucket and be like, I'm not giving to the kids, right? Because who's that heartless, right? And some of you are like, I don't have cash. That's why I'm not putting anything in here. I just don't carry cash. And you have to feel like you got to explain. New Testament giving isn't that kind of giving, we don't pass the plate because we don't want you to feel like that is what giving is. We want, we want you to understand that it is like the rest of this verse, right? That each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a, what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. Like that kind of giving, that kind of giving is only found in this place of contentment. It's not about percentage, it's not about a line item and a budget, it's not about convenience, it is about a relationship between you and God. That's the heart of worship, that's the heart of giving. You see, giving is about a relationship. Giving is about a relationship. You see, we're a church that's centered on the gospel, and here's what that means. That means we believe that God loves you and God made you and God has a great plan for your life. The problem is we have sinned. Not only have we sinned, we adopted sin from Adam and Eve. Uh, they did it first and it has carried on and it has separated the relationship between you and God, but God provided a way to fix it in Jesus. Because Jesus was born and he lived this life on earth because he is God. God sent his son, his only son, his begotten son. He sent the, the third of the Trinity to earth to walk as a human. And Jesus did something that we are unable to do and that he lived a perfect life. He lived in complete fulfillment of the Old Testament. He did nothing wrong. And yet he died the death of a criminal. He died the death of somebody who did everything wrong. And what happens is this great exchange. When you say yes to Jesus, you get the benefit of his life and he takes on the punishment of yours. And when that happens, when you say yes to Jesus, and it's not about you doing this song and dance to make God love you, to make God like you. When you say yes to Jesus, 
you have this relationship with God that is fully available to you all the time because of what Jesus did, not because of what you've done, because you are now forgiven. And somehow, and I don't know how this works, but the Bible says that this happens, that when God sees you, he sees his son. Now, if you have a child, you know that when you look at a child, there is nothing but love and, and, and respect, and you're proud of your son. Because you see, in Jesus, God not only loves us, he likes us. That's the kind of relationship that we have with God. That's what the gospel means. And for some of you, this might be new. And for you, I invite you to say yes to Jesus today. And you can meet with somebody with a prayer team. You don't have to meet with anybody. You can just say yes to Jesus. And if you want to meet with somebody, we've got the prayer team. You can put the connect card and we'd love to follow up with you. But for many of us in this room, we already have this personal relationship with God through Jesus. And to you, your giving comes from this relationship with God. From this Jesus-bought, forgiven relationship with God. And saints, can I share with you a litmus test so that you know if you're in this place of contentment or not when you're looking at your limits, and it's this. When you face your limits, does it produce worry or does it produce worship? When you face your limits, does it produce worry or does it produce worship? Do you wonder how God is gonna meet your needs or do you worry that he won't? Do you worship God when you see your limits or do you worry? Because saints, here's the part where you're gonna think I have lost my ever-loving mind, right? That's what we said in Texas. You have lost your ever-loving mind. Saints, listen to me. We believe that God is in control. We believe that God is a big God. We believe that he has his eye on us. Like Jesus said, he does the sparrow, right? Here's what that means. It means we don't have to worry. It means worry is something that can be behind us, not in front of us. Doesn't that sound crazy? Doesn't it sound crazy to think you can have a life free of worry because God is in control? And you're saying, Fred, does that mean when I get fired from my job, I don't have to worry? Yes. Fred, when that emergence, when that bill comes in from the hospital that I didn't expect or that diagnosis comes that I didn't expect, are you saying I don't have to worry? Yes. I'm not saying you don't have to work. I'm not saying it's not gonna be easy. I'm saying it could be very hard. I'm saying you can and probably will suffer deeply in your life, but do you have to worry? No, because you've got a God who loves you. You've got a God who knows you. You've got a God who doesn't leave you in your suffering, but walks through it with you. That's our God, and that's our gospel. He will meet your needs, and you can worship him with your giving. You can worship him in contentment. 
And the joy of our gospel is that we don't have to worry about impressing God, right? It's not the amount that you give. God, you can give 10% to the penny, and he is no more pleased with that than the person who gives $5 a month if their heart is in a place of worship and your, your heart is in a place of convenience. That is scandalous. But that is our God. That this act of giving, if it's not from the heart, if it's not based on a relationship with God, then it's not worship. If it doesn't produce gratitude, it's not worship. And so let me ask you, is your giving an act of worship or is it from a place of worry? Is your giving a contribution or is it from, is it from a place of convenience? Because here's the great news. If it's not an act of worship, or if even if it's not happening at all, the joy of our gospel is that can change in an instant. Because remember, we're talking about an eclipse. An eclipse, you change, what you, you change where you are, you change what you see. It's a matter of perspective. And so the application for this message isn't to give more, right? I don't want you to leave here thinking Fred said give more. Here's what I do want you to do more of this week. I want you to worship more this week. I want you to set aside more time this week than you did last week for your own personal time of worship, to read your Bible, to pray, and to listen to the God who loves you and the God who sent his son to die for you so that you could have a good and right relationship with him. That's what I want you to do more of this week. I want you to, to grow in your contentment this week. Right? Do I want you to give more? Oh, come on, I just told you the answer to that. <laughs> Am I saying that I want you to give more? No. I want you to worship more. I want you to enjoy your relationship with God more. That's what I want. That's what Paul did. That's why he was able to be thankful for the gift and to tell the, the church in Philippi that, listen, trust me, God will meet your needs because fellowship, God will meet your needs. So let's worship, let's trust, and let's spend time this week with our God and may we find contentment there. Let's pray. Jesus, in your hands is where contentment lives. In your presence is where we can find joy. And so, Father, this week, may we worship you more. May we experience contentment that we never have. May we, if we have struggled with worry for so long, may we experience freedom from that, even if just for a moment to get a taste of what reality can be, to get a taste for what it's like to not worry, but to trust you instead. And Father, may you be glorified in that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.